Hallelujah. Father, we thank you as we have sung in these songs. Lord, that the right hand of our God has done valiantly. By your right hand, you vanquished your enemies. You saved a people. You created this world. You sustained it through the moments in which we live and on until the end of time. Lord, but greatest of all, for the hope of our souls, we recognize the right hand of our God in Jesus Christ, taking on humanity, stretched upon the cruel cross of Calvary, receiving in that same right arm the cost of our redemption, the nails that pierced his hands and feet, that took the payment that we deserved. This is the right hand of our God who has done valiantly on our behalf, vanquishing every foe and establishing his kingdom and rule. We thank you, Lord, that we serve a God powerful to, succumb, to uh, bring his enemies into submission to him and powerful to save his people, even at the cost of his own son. This Jesus Christ, our Savior and Sovereign, we recognize revealed in his word. We pray, Lord, that your right hand would reach further still to open our hearts to receive the message of hope and truth in Christ and all the gospel applied as we seek understanding in your word today. We pray that your right hand would reach into this service and open my mouth to proclaim with responsibility and accuracy the word as you have ordained and written it. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts by your right hand to write there the message of truth that we would not soon forget, but we would hear and do the holy word of God. When you answer these prayers, we recognize it is not of our doing, not our right hand, but instead the power of the Spirit alone who applies his word and equips his church and saves souls and prepares us, Lord, for the work that you have ordained in advance for us to accomplish. In all these things, may you, be, may you be glorified and magnified in the hearts of the hearer, in the obedience of the saints, and in the confession of faith and repentance in the unbeliever, and the proclamation of truth to a world that needs to hear that Jesus is Lord. We proclaim this truth, that he has saved us by his blood. We proclaim his name is hallowed and powerful over all. May Jesus be glorified and exalted in this service and in this sermon. In his name we pray, amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. What a great privilege we have together to gather in the name of our Lord, to worship him in spirit and in truth, and to conform our souls, our understanding, and even our actions to the standard of obedience that we see in his scripture. And this was a vision for the believer, the third purpose of the law, if you will, to walk in a manner, as Paul says, worthy of our call, or to obey our Lord and Savior joyfully now, having transformed hearts. So in order to aid us in doing so, let us turn to Psalm 119 today. Normally this is our second Sunday of the month series in Psalms, but because of Resurrection Sunday last week, we've moved it off one week, and now we pick up in this great acrostic psalm in stanza number 18, which comprised verses 137 through 144. While you're turning there, let me remind you, each stanza is named according to a letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And you'll see that heading in your scriptures, I trust. The word, as, I, as far as I know, is pronounced sade, T-S-A-D-H-E. And that is the 18th letter in the Hebrew alphabet. 
Each original verse begins with that letter in this great acrostic hymn. The aim of this morning's message is to echo what the psalmist has confessed throughout the song and no less in the stanza today, the superior authority of God's word. I pray in this message that I champion the superior authority of God's word and that your hearts are encouraged by that message. Under this uh, Sade uh, theme or uh, a title as it's given, may I suggest a subtitle, The Trial of Trouble. The psalmist faces trouble and anguish, and we've seen this pattern throughout. There's a presenting challenge or test in each stanza. Yet what we have found, along with him, in every case, the word of God, nevertheless, is sufficient or powerful to overcome, indeed, even the trial of trouble. With that introduction and your hearts open and in reverence, would you stand for the reading of God's word today? Listen as the scriptures are proclaimed in your hearing. Psalm 119, 137 through 144. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried. Your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Right, righteousness, this reference to the attribute of Yahweh, our Lord, capital L-O-R-D, in your translation, I trust, in verse 37, is a repeated theme. The righteousness of Yahweh is featured in the 18th stanza. That word, in some variation, is repeated six times in Psalm 119, stanza 18, this great acrostic celebration of covenant revelation, or the word of God. I've used the term throughout this message series of covenant revelation as synonymous with the word of God. Covenant promise or relationship, revelation revealed. The word of God is just that. It is the revelation of God through his relation, in relationship to his people, and in fact to all people, as it is the truth of the Lord from the first page to the last, written and recorded for us to behold. Here in Psalm 119, each original verse beginning in the 18th stanza with Sadhe, the Hebrew letter, extols the sufficiency of the word of God in spite of the social standing of the author. As far as the world is concerned or in the perception of those around him, he may be, verse 141, small and despised. But that doesn't matter so long as the word of God is true. In spite of his social standing as small and despised, and the trials fraught with trouble and anguish, verse 143, inflicted by his enemies, his foes, in 139, nevertheless, our author remains resolute. None of these difficulties compare with the superior four things, zeal, love, delight, and remembrance he enjoys meditating on and living according to the rules, the testimonies, the words, the promises, the precepts, the law, and the commandments of his faithful and righteous Lord. 
That's just a run-on sentence that tries to summarize the heart of what the psalmist confesses. Now, in this stanza, we highlight, by my count, the 143rd reference to the covenant revelation or the word of the Lord as this epic song reprises once again the glories of the Lord revealed in his word of truth. And I've simply taken a orange pencil and when I see precepts, law, commandments, testimonies, promise, and so forth, I've underlined and tried to count them as we go. 144 verses and by my count 143 synonyms. So we see for just about every verse, the psalmist references the foundation of the hope of his soul, indeed, the covenant revelation of the Lord. Today, later today, four o'clock, if our schedule holds and people are able to make it on these roads and so forth, we are meeting with representatives of our area who are serving in government, that is the lawmaking body or legislature of our state. Now, given the occasion of this event, troubling trends as far as the laws of Minnesota go, this stanza strikes me. This stanza, 18, and all of Psalm 119, and of course, extension, the whole word of God, they certainly appear all the more relevant. Now, I've suggested this before, but let me just reiterate it and get, on it, get it on the record again. I would wholeheartedly endorse the policy of requiring every magistrate who serves in some civil role in our government that a prerequisite to do so would be to memorize all of Psalm 119. Ah, not many people are willing to do that, you might say. But think about those who would be willing to do so. You think they'd be more qualified to serve than the ones we have today? They certainly would be. Now, may I, on this standard, would not be qualified to serve. I have not memorized all of Psalm 119. And if we don't implement that policy within our lifetime, let me suggest the following. We should minimally require that the heart of the psalmist reflect, be reflected by all who presume to wield power in our day. That's the real message. All who have some influence, presume to wield some power, ought to share the heart of the psalmist of Psalm 119. This goes for someone who has influence over a friend. It goes for a parent who is discipling children, raising kids. It goes for people who are in an administrative position in their work. It goes for every area and level of society all the way up to the president of the United States. We are held to this standard, and if we fall short, we should pray and repent. And if we do not see this standard reflected among our magistrates, let us heed the word of God and continue to pray for those in authority and insist that they themselves repent from their idolatrous rebellion against the one true sovereign, the Lord revealed in his holy word, even as we search our own hearts according to the standard of reverence for the covenant revelation or the word of God endorsed by all of Psalm 119. I have a heading, very simple, and three points today. God's word and the following. Let us consider Psalm 119, 18th stanza, under this framework, if you will, God's word and his nature. Number one, point number one, 137 and 138 would be those two verses. Secondly, God's word and our assent. That would be our agreement, our submission to it, our, our uh, bowing to it, 139 through 141. And then finally, let us consider God's word and eternal sufficiency. Eternal, of course, forever sufficiency. It is absolutely up to the task. It's everything we need. It is satisfactory for the challenges that one might face. His nature, our ascent, and eternal sufficiency under the heading of God's word. And of course, the psalmist, you could also substitute for God's word, his revelation. Furthermore, in his words, his rules, 
his testimonies, his words, his promise, his precepts, his law, and his commandments. So according to the psalmist in verses 137 and 138, God's word is an extension of, or it's reflective of, it communicates his very nature. Righteousness is highlighted especially in this section, but notice verses 137 and 138. He says, righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. What is the nature of God? He is righteous. What is the nature of his word or his rules? They also are right. You see, God's word is an extension of his nature. Verse 138, you have appointed your testimonies in righteousness. If there is a testimony, if there is a statement, a declarative statement, a principle, a precept, a promise, a command, something that God has laid forth, a proposition in his word, it has done so, according to the psalmist, in righteousness. How do we know this? Because our Lord is righteous. Furthermore, he says, and in all faithfulness. The word of God is righteous. The word of God is faithful because our Lord is righteous and faithful. My favorite illustration of the revelation of the Lord and almost being, you could maybe use this analogy as a holographic image of his nature. I like that picture. It might fall short in some degree, but think of that analogy of the word of God. It's almost like a hologram of the Lord's character. In Exodus chapter 3, you remember this story, I trust. Moses is receiving instructions by Yahweh himself to go and set his people free from bondage in Egypt. Kids, how did the Lord reveal himself? Suddenly Moses, watching his sheep, and something happens. It catches his eye, and there's something crazy that he sees. Do you guys remember what it was? A burning bush, that is correct. And was the bush, uh, did it disappear in the fire? No, the bush was not burned. So I've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating. This was a purposeful revelation of the Lord. Even that image is in accordance with his character. In other words, you could say it this way. God is the fire, the source, which requires no source of fuel. God is self-contained. He is everything, self-sufficient, non-contingent. Those are the technical words. God is in and of himself, complete and whole. He is the source. He is neither dependent on anything, nor is, does he need anything, and everything therefore exists by his will and power and pleasure to give him glory. He is the fire that needs no fuel. He is the I am as he reveals himself. You see, the word of God in I am, there is nothing that I'm dependent on. I am in and of myself, holy, awesome, true, just, righteous, perfect. That co uh, coincides with the picture of God revealed as the fire that needs no fuel which emanating its glory to Moses in that moment. You see here how there's a relationship between the revelation of God and his character as one example. Now, all other assertions of authority, all other lesser assertions of authority are derivative or they are condemned by the Lord. And that is what Psalm 119 confesses and that is what our sinful world and ourselves, if we should fall short of this standard, need to realize. All true authority is based from, derived, based on and derived from the Lord and his holy character. As we see under his nature, there are three aspects perhaps we could highlight of God's nature highlighted in verses 137-138. First, righteousness. Second, appointment. Third, faithfulness. Righteous are you, O Lord. And by extension, let me say this. This is worth writing down, I think. The moral perfection of our Lord is expressed infallibly in his law. The psalmist is saying in verse 137, Righteous are you, O Lord, 
and right are your rules. What can we deduce from this statement? The following, again, the moral perfection of our Lord is expressed infallibly in his law. His word is as perfect as he is. The moral perfection of our Lord is expressed infallibly in his word or in his law. I submit more than any other statement I may make in this message today, that probably will appear the most offensive to modern man. Our modern ears like to pick and choose according to our own subjective standard what we prefer as far as morality goes. We go up to this buffet of an all-you-can-eat religious philosophy or moral ideas, and we say, I'll have a little bit of salad, I'll have some dressing on it, I'll take you know, some of this, some of that hold the croutons, you know, of this and give me some. And this is how most people uh, come to their idea and understanding of truth, as if they are sovereign at a buffet of options and are building their worldview according to their own whim and fancy. And as a result, they are influenced by cultural pressures, the perception of others, things that are popular, ideas, experiences, their own history, you know, perhaps negative things like trauma or positive things like cultural heroes, celebrity influence, you name it, social media and everything propaganda. Our world is full of opportunity to be influenced, to shape according to our preference, what we think is right and what we think is wrong. The psalmist cuts through all of this by saying, righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. And his heart attitude and submission is to say, it doesn't matter what I prefer, it doesn't matter what I think, nor does it matter that I'm small and despised and my idea or my convictions are rejected and that my foes oppose what I believe in or that trouble and anguish follow me as a result of what I hold dear. I confess in spite of all of this that your law and your moral perf perfections go hand in hand, that you are perfect and therefore your word is too. Now, as we read the scriptures and we honestly take them on their own terms, they, in their self-disclosure, do not dilute in any way the power, the morality, the righteousness, the faithfulness, the authority of our Almighty God. Many people presume that they do, but what are they doing? They are taking an assumption and imposing it on the text. They say things like, well, because of the limited experience of ethnic Israel, their minds really couldn't comprehend the whole universe and world such as it is. So we need to take that into account when we read how they ordered their society in the Old Testament. Is that true? No. That is something presupposed that we bring to the text and force into it. On the contrary, when you read the Word of God, what does it begin with? The Word of God is responsible for creating all the material world by the power of His Word out of nothing. That is the self-attestation. That is the claim of Holy Scripture, that everything owes its existence, its origin, and sustenance to an almighty authoritative God whose word created it in the first place. There's a term called henotheism, which means that each country or ethnic group sees a sovereign or God, but then it kind of goes up to their borders, and then there's an acknowledgement of a different sovereign when you cross the border. Is so, and then, you know, modern scholarship has held that there's a development of monotheism over time. And in the Old Testament, you see this henotheistic tendency. Is that true? No, it's false. It is false. I reject all of these presuppositions that 
uh, rebels bring to the text. And why do we know this is false? Well, in Exodus 3, that reference I told you, what does Moses do? He brings the authority of the I am self-contained author and finisher of all of history, sovereign over the universe, and issues an indictment to the greatest, you know, the greatest authority of that day and says, let my people go or else, or else what? Or else the God who is over Egypt will dethrone every idea of divinity in their pantheon, and Pharaoh himself will be drowned in the sea if he's not careful. The waves that God commands by the power of his word are sufficient to swallow every rebel if they don't repent. It doesn't matter how big their empire is. This is the righteousness of our Lord. This is the sovereignty of our God revealed in Scripture. There are no primitive accommodations that we need to assume when we read the word. There's no moral progressivism assumed in Scripture. There's no limited thinking based on one's close-minded or, you know, close or parochial or limited experience. There's no ethnic narcissism in Scripture that doesn't take into account from God's perspective all of the world and all of history and all of the cosmos. There's no religious pluralism that, assumes, uh, that is assumed in the Bible. Well, they have good ideas and we have good ideas and, and everybody has a little bit of truth that is intrinsic to them and uh, we need to come up with an amalgamation of that to, to arrive at a good worldview. There's no neutrality philosophically. No, all these are deluded ideas that people bring to the text. The psalmist confesses, Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in faithfulness, period. Appointed. The term appointed, you have appointed your testimonies, presupposes law-making authority. The Lord himself, in and of his character, inasmuch as he is perfect in his righteousness, faithfulness, justice, and truth, alone has the ultimate authority to appoint law, to presume law-making authority. In legal scholarship, this is called positive law. And some people say, oh, the highest affirmed court in land, like, you know, the Supreme Court or maybe the legislative body of Congress, they alone have the ability through where they draw their legitimacy on democratic, you know, affirmation of the people, they can make positive law. No, they cannot. They can try. They can presume to have that authority, but there's a higher law still that judges them. All appointment comes as a derivative, all authority to establish law is a derivative of what God in his righteousness and his character delegates to us. This likewise is an, is an offensive notion to those of us who buy the lie of Satan and would like to be our own gods. You know, today we have the activist foot soldiers of the new worldview out there, and they're screaming at the top of their lungs, aren't they? We see them out there shouting, the neo-Sodom lobby refusing to stop. They refuse to stop screaming until all of reality conforms to their slogans. Even this week, there was an assault on a lady swimmer who would prefer not to swim against biological males and was making that point at a university. And there was, I don't know, trans-identified individuals or so forth, whatever these popular terms are these days, are screaming at the top of their lungs, trans women are women, trans women are women creating this violent, and you can see the heart of this kind of false appointment authority that they're trying to, to hold on to. They won't stop yelling at the top of their lungs until reality itself conforms to their slogans. Will it be successful? No, they will only be proven fools. The Lord has made us male and female. He has created us, and only a fool assumes 
lawmaking, law appointing, or recreative authority to change those things. No, only a fool would assume that volume levels give you appointment authority. Only a fool would assume that majority opinion gives you appointment authority. Only a fool would assume that court precedent or modern scholarship or legislatures or celebrity causes or slogans or philosophers, professors, scientists, politicians, are these, you know, epithy slogans or rhyming phrases or flags or influencers comprise appointment authority. None of them do. No, only the Lord. The nature of God is the foundation of his very decrees. And these are as sure as gravity is for the physical world. And, uh, his decrees of righteousness are as sure for the moral universe as well. You could say it this way, all legitimate authority rests exclusively upon the holiness of God. All legitimate authority rests exclusively upon the holiness of God. Our Lord is also faithful. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. Within our Lord, James 1.17, there is no darkness, no shadow of turning, some translations say. Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the apostolic testimony joining the message of Psalm 119, confessing that the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is no change in him. He is faithful and consistent. He is immutable, unchangeable in his goodness, in his kindness, in his character, in his uh, righteousness, in his faithfulness. The consistency of God is a synonym or is, is extended an extension of his faithfulness. And the Lord is consistent with and never deviates from his nature, which, as I say, is absolutely unchangeable. Furthermore, his decree, the Lord is faithful to his decree. In Westminster Shorter Catechism, question seven, what are the decrees of God? So just summary language of what the Bible teaches. The answer is his eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. The Lord is faithful to what he has foreordained. And in the counsel of his will, not listening to the lobbyists of sinners and rebels and changing his terms according to the whims of our culture, not adopting the latest marginalized group and their cause as his virtue signaling opportunity to show his moral virtue and character according to the perceptions of our sinful neighbors. You know, these days, no, the Lord does not change. As we have said, his decrees are established according to his character, immutable, unchangeable. The Lord is faithful to his word. People who might try to find, they make it a hobby and habit to, to uh, see if they can find contradictions in his scripture. And if you're familiar with any of these objections raised against the Bible, the deeper you dig, the more you find that their case falls apart. Often, and in every case, I, I submit that a, an apparent contradiction proves actually the opposite. It merely reinforces what God has said. And as a result, holds the rebel and the objector accountable for his misrepresentation or at least misunderstanding of the word of God. 
which is steadfast and immutable. His kingdom, the Lord does not, he is faithful to his kingdom. He does not deviate in his manifest rule in all of his creation. And then the Lord is faithful to his covenant, which is his promises for those whom he has set his favor upon and his redeemed. And it is this that provides us that personal hope. We know abstractly that the Lord will never deviate from his decrees. But we also know personally that the Lord will never deviate from his promises to us in Christ Jesus. And these promises are incredible. That absolute moral perfection I talked about is reflected in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He, as the second person of the Trinity, alone has that perfect righteousness and he grants it unto us so that we, in this great exchange, receive that justifying decree of innocent before the Lord because of the righteousness of Jesus. And this is promised to us in the gospel and the Lord is faithful to that promise. We stand before the Lord not pleading our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus and our trust in him that he paid for our sins. We can rest assured that God's promises based on that decree will not change. Based on that promise will not change. And eternal life is assured us in Christ. This is the faithfulness of our Lord. We see his faithfulness with reference to every aspect of his will and character. And thus the psalmist confesses the righteousness of the Lord and his faithfulness and his appointment, authority, undergirds and establishes the foundation of his rules and testimonies, period. God's word and his nature are hand in hand. Secondly, God's word and our assent. In light of this, what is the proper response, we might ask? Well, the psalmist over and again models a response. In Psalm 139, he says, my zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. The fact that the obvious, the foundational, and inarguable truth of the Lord is not heeded but forgotten by the foes of the Lord ought to move us to a certain confidence and zeal. The psalmist responds, even in the midst of his enemies and the Lord's enemies, with zeal. This is how he assents to the truth of the Lord. Furthermore, love. 140, your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. He has zeal for the word of the Lord. He loves the word of God. Remembrance 141. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. The ascent of the psalmist, his agreement with the word of God, is represented in his zeal, in his love, in his remembrance. And finally, we've covered this recently. Verse 143, delight. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. The psalmist delights in the word, in the law, the revelation of the Lord. The word of God stands as a standard, as a norm, as a rule, as an absolute immovable measure. Our sin nature is confronted by this standard, and it either conforms to the word of God or it is condemned by the word of God. Recently, we've run across this verse, and I'll just bring it to your attention again. Because in the context of Romans, it's very appropriate. The, the uh, first 11 chapters or so of Romans lay out the gospel and its, and its uh, implications so far as the Lord's purposes revealed in Christ are concerned. And then 12, there's this shift and what, uh, where the, he begins to emphasize more what that means for us. And these are familiar verses, but hear them again. Psalm, or I'm sorry, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal, Paul says, to you, therefore, brothers... 
by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You see, that language is ascent language, submission language. I present myself to you. I submit to you, holy and acceptable to the Lord, which is your spiritual worship. The relationship between the sovereignty of God and the submission of man is well established in this confession. Verse 2, he says, do not be conformed to this world. Don't submit to this world. Uh, present yourself and, sla and slavery and sacrifice and submission to the world, but rather be transformed by the renewal of your mind by the that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is, your good, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So the word of God confronts us. And then there, and there are only two options. We conform, as Paul describes, upon the knowledge of the gospel and ourselves in light of truth, or we are condemned. And that is what the ascent of every human being before the authority of the Lord looks like. Now, as I mentioned before, this is not universally affirmed or accepted. That's certainly true. How should we respond when it is not? Let us join the psalmist with zeal. Let us join Jesus with his zeal that consumed him even though he had foes as well. For an example of zeal in action, would you turn with me to John chapter 2? This is that the first temple cleansing that we see in the Gospels. This is quite the moment indeed. What is it? Let, let's just uh, introduce this portion of the Scripture by asking the question, Jesus, in his humanity, what was his primary motive and acting as follows. This is John 2.13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple. Um, it strikes me, Judah, are you here? Wave your hand, Judah, if you're in the crowd today. Judah made a whip of cords he showed me today. It was pretty impressive. I don't know if you guys have seen Judah's bullwhip skills, but he has this ability to snap that whip, and as he tells me, it breaks the speed of sound and just cracks. And there's some real authority represented in that whip. You better respect what the speed of that sound-breaking instrument or weapon can do. Well, let's not minimize the intensity of what Jesus does here. Imagine that cracking whip and this instrument of reckoning authority and Jesus bearing that and acting as follows, verse 15, making a whip out of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, listen, zeal for your house will consume me. There it is, the word of God revealed uh, to the disciples the motive of Jesus Christ for overthrowing the money changers in this temple context. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And the count of Luke, shortly after this event, they ask him, by what authority do you do these things? They're stunned at what they just witnessed. So what do we witness? Well, properly understood, we witness the zeal of one acting as an agent of the authority of God bringing a day of reckoning for those who would desecrate the holy. You see, these people and their self-serving monetary interest had taken something holy, the worship of the Lord, and the area reserved for God's connection with man through this uh, institution of Old Testament sacrifice. And in those hallowed walls, the word of God was to be affirmed to the T. 
And now money changers were going in and charging people inordinate amounts of money to change their coinage into you know, the denomination of the day and selling and just profiting off of the worship and so forth. And so Jesus went in there with great zeal. The motive for him, the motive force, providing Jesus the confidence to execute this intimidate or this uh, day of reckoning on the rebels is interesting. It was derived, according to the disciples' understanding, from the word of God. The word of God which said, zeal for my house. That is, the Lord's motive to defend worship. May the love, or, or may this uh, motive uh, fill his church as well. Now, as we uh, consider this action of a claim to authority and then taking actions accordingly, we also, of course, want to quickly say that not all of us are delegated the responsibility to take up a whip and take out the Lord's vengeance on his enemies. But Jesus was certainly in that position as second person of the Trinity. And thus, he, in his zeal, recognizing that God was jealous for his worship, brought that day of reckoning and so forth. But think about how intimidating the situation would be, the context. Intimidating counterclaims to authority were all around him. You know, the disruption of the circumstances would, be, uh, would present a real problem for the Roman authorities. The temple guard and the religious leaders of the day, they had some real power that they could bring against him. Jesus' authority here was wielded in the face of the establishment, if you will, and it was done with confidence and decisiveness. That is to say, Jesus stood for the glory of God against an entire enemy establishment without backing down with confidence and boldness. What gave him the ability to do so? The word of God. The zeal of the Lord, even though he was surrounded by enemies, did, uh, was sufficient motive for him to stand in that day. And by extension, inasmuch as the Lord has called us to stand and to act in the spheres in which he has given us authority, we ought to draw zeal from the word of God as well. Even though the religious or cultural or government establishment might stand against the Christian worldview, nevertheless, the word of God is sufficient to give us the confidence and the zeal to simply stand our ground when all around us, our foes oppose us and consider us small and despised and inflict upon us trouble and anguish. Our ascent, love, secondly, your is well tried and your servant loves it. This relationship of the servant, the psalmist, to the word of the Lord, there's a, a, a scope of affections that's illustrated here. There's that confident zeal and there's this affectionate love. He is extolling the well tried promises of God. He has seen in his life as he lives his days and even the length of the psalm reflects this, that time and time again, the word of God has stood when other claims, false authorities, and its opponents fail the test of time. Uh, the word of God has stood up to every conceivable test that men could invent or imagine. All the way back to the, from the first words spoken to Adam to modern culture at war with Christian worldviews. Nevertheless, the word of God stands. You think in contrast of how ridiculous and arbitrary man's decrees are. You know, this last week, the government lifted its COVID emergency restrictions. 
and how arbitrary? I mean, who's been, uh, who's been, who, and um, in, objectively speaking, what kind of emergency have we been in for the last year, really now? Well, this just illustrates to us that the decrees of man are arbitrary. They're based on whim and not, and there's so many things that affect them sinfully and ridiculously. He, man is finite and short-sighted. And the only way we can possibly act with wisdom is to affirm his word, to apply it, and to act accordingly. So COVID restrictions and COVID policies, they did not stand the test of time. But the word of God did. You know, the priority of the worship of Jesus Christ over the whims of a government who like to shut those things down for public health, in the end, after three or so years, who is standing and who is foolish? Well, from the eyes of the Lord and the perspective of history, we see that those who are the only ones who are on the quote-unquote right side of history are those who stand on the word of God, even when it's unpopular in the moment. Don't make the mistake of shifting your confidence over to the waves that blow across the landscape of culture. Uh, you know, though, they though this sometimes comes with persecution and a cost, nevertheless, we should love the Lord and consider every time the word of God is proven righteous and wise and every opponent a fool, we should increase in our love for the Lord. May our love for the word of God only increase with every triumph of wisdom over the foolishness of this world. And we have a lot of those these days. Let, let your love and appreciation for the word of God increase with every triumph of the wisdom of the Lord over the foolishness of this world. Your promise is well tried, the psalmist says, and your servant loves it. Let your heart be filled with the smiles of glorious, uh, of just glorious vindication that the Lord in his glory has been revealed. And you can even join the attitude of heaven which laughs in derision against the fools who mock or try to change it every time the Lord wins and his enemies are vanquished. Remembrance, our ascent, zeal, love, remembrance. 141, I am small and despised. This is the attitude of those around him. He can relate to us feeling like a marginalized minority who's ostracized from the popular or celebrated morality or virtues of the day. Yet I do not forget your precepts. So how can you have grace to remain small and despise the perceptions of others and not lose your faith? Don't forget the precepts of the Lord. Our assent to the word of God involves zeal, involves love, and involves remembrance. The harder it gets, the more the pressure is turned up, the more trials and temptations that we may face on a personal level or on a cultural level, remember the Lord's word all the more. You might need to spend 20 more minutes in the morning digging into the scriptures. You might need to listen a little longer to the Bible in your app like I do on the job site, just listening to the word of God and being reminded of its power, its sufficiency, and its authority. This is part of our ascent to God's word. And finally, delight under this second major point. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. We spoke about this because this word appeared in our last stanza, I believe. The other night, I was out with my two-year-old, uh, Hugo, and um, his vocal tones change. He drops his voice to kind of a hushed tone or whisper, and he looks up at the sky and begins to talk about the stars. And for a moment, I was reminded, kind of convicted, by the attitude of my two-year-old, what delight looks like. There's something about age that naturally brings cynicism. I don't think about the stars too often. I don't think about them as much as I ought. 
There are so many ways that the Lord has displayed his glorious power, and there's a message in the stars as well. I, for instance, can look up in the stars with more delight still than my two-year-old, knowing that the promises of Abraham are true for me. As many of those as I can count, I can pick one and say, that represents me. Jesus Christ has saved me. He has promised, according to the number of the stars in heaven, to give to the seed of, or to give to Abraham an inheritance of spiritual heirs beyond number. As many as the stars in the heavens, Abraham, so will be your future spiritual lineage. If you're a believer in the room, you're accounted among them. So the stars preach a message of God's covenant faithfulness, his steadfast love. They proclaim the gospel from the heavenlies. Scriptures say this too in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Shame on me if my two-year-old is more readily recognizing those kinds of things than myself. So that's another prescription for us. When we're faced with the malady of a culture at odds with our worldview, take time to delight in the word of God. Word of God revealed in general revelation in nature. And even more importantly, specifically in his holy word. This is our ascent to God's word. Our ascent as the psalmist references four ways, zeal, love, remembrance, and delight. Let's close this message by beholding what the psalmist also delights in, the sufficiency eternally of God's word. God's word and eternal sufficiency. 143 and 144. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Let's go back to 142. Your righteousness is righteous forever. Is that eternal reference? Your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. And then 144, your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Your righteousness is righteous forever. Your testimonies are righteous forever. There's an eternal sufficiency that the psalmist celebrates and extols in his poetic way as this stanza closes. He's reiterating, of course, the major theme of Psalm 119, the sufficiency or the ability of God's word, that it is up to the task and everything we need for every trial, challenge, problem that we face. The sufficiency of God's word, the great overarching theme of Psalm 119. And here, the psalmist confesses this is immutably true. It is forever true. As we see this contrasted with the changing fickle nature of false acclaims authority to authority around us, we find ourselves excuse me, in want of a great, of a standard. I was listening this week, I thought it was a great illustration, so let me pass it along. I was listening this week to uh, Ron Paul. So if you're not familiar with him, one, I would say, of the more principled legislators to serve in recent years, a congressman from Texas. Ron Paul has dedicated a lot of his scholarly work and his legacy to advancing a few things. Among them, this concept, and this was new to me, but I found it uh, of great importance. He said he was lamenting in this interview the absence of documenting the consequences of losing, quote, a unit of account. Uh, Ron Paul was saying that on economic terms, especially, and you could write this down, objective, verifiable standard by which human transactions are measured. What is a unit of account? It's an objective, verifiable standard by which human transactions are measured. And if an economy does not have a unit of account, if gold no longer backs our currency, 
you know, the easy way to understand it might be, I have you know, so much gold and I have so many dollars and each dollar's worth an ounce of gold. And without telling everybody, I go out and print twice as many dollars. Now people think their gold can buy an ounce or their dollar can buy an ounce of gold's worth of stuff. But in, in reality, when it catches up to the truth, they'll find that I have broken the 10 commandments in my a monetary policy. I am not accurately representing. What have I done? I've transgressed my unit of account. That is to say that in order for an economy to be healthy, it must have a verifiable standard. It must have a transcendent, which means over and above unit of account, whereby all transactions, by transaction, you could substitute covenant or relationship are measured. And more important than this, that's the economic picture. Ron Paul then went on to, uh, to uh, make the analogy to society its, itself. And he said, even more importantly, or in our society, we have lost our unit of account morally. Bingo. That is nail on the head right there. Because we have lost this transcendent, objective, verifiable standard by which to measure relationships, covenants, interaction between human beings, we will suffer implosion and degradation and judgment of God as a result. What is that unit of account, ultimately speaking? And this applies to everything, be it economics or be it your obligation to love your neighbor as yourself. We know what it is. Psalm 119, 143 times, has already emphasized to us what it is. That unit of account is the covenant revelation of the Lord. It is his rules, his testimonies, his words, and his promise. It is his precepts, his law, his commandments, and so forth. This is the unit of account. Now remember that. This is a trial-tested unit. In every age, we've either proven ourselves wise in conformity to it or fools in falling short, and it does not change. Now, we pray that our nation would change. We pray that God would have mercy upon us, but part and parcel of the repentance that is needful for the souls of the average citizen and the convictions of the magistrates at the state level or higher is to return to the unit of account the authority and the revelation of the word of God as the measure, objective and verifiable, by which to judge all relationships, contracts, covenants, interactions between men, and even more importantly, between man and God. This unit of account, when it is affirmed, the word of God, which declares that God is holy and the basis of all legitimate authority is built on his righteousness and his faithfulness. We are self in light of him have fallen short of that unit of account. We are sinners. How might we be in right standing with him? We repent, we turn, we trust that he would pay our debt on Jesus Christ because of cheating that unit of account our whole life long until the point that we are saved. And then, what does repentance look like? It looks like affirming that standard, that objectively verifiable foundation, truth, and authority, and to do so in every area of life, from the laws of our land to the order of our homes the convictions of our souls, our decisions at work, the raising of our children, the spending of our money, everything. That is what is lost. Now, it can be regained by his people. We have access to it in his holy word. How precious is the word of God inasmuch as it reveals to us this lost standard and can, through the Spirit's use of the proclamation and understanding of the word of God, restore it to our lives and our consciousness. This is the eternal sufficiency of the word of God that is celebrated here. It's immutably true, it's time-tested, and it's necessary for life. 
Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Now, a fancy term, existential necessity. I bring this up because it's a buzzword phrase. Oh, we're in an existential crisis. You guys hear that? The propaganda of our day. Climate change is an existential crisis. I give us 12 years max and we'll be undone, you know. How many things do the propaganda outlets proclaim are an existential crisis? That is, they threaten our very existence or threaten our survival. Is it the assault-style weapons that they hold responsible for recent shootings? Is it the health care system? We need single-payer government-funded you know, health care. Otherwise, we're in an existential crisis. Is it the restriction to so-called you know, uh, health care or so-called reproductive care, which is a euphemism for abortion access, the ability under the law to, to kill your child without consequences? Or is it the lack of so-called gender-affirming care or deny people their delusion to mutilate their bodies in light of their quest to be as God? Are these things the existential crisis? No. In fact, all of these fall well outside of the word of God and what is necessary for life. You see, mankind will rely on some truth, some statement, some worldview, some idea in order to secure his future. But everything I just mentioned falls into the fool category. Give me understanding of your testimonies, your commandments, your law, your precepts, the unit of account, the unchangeable foundation of all morality and righteousness, the only authority-granting source in all the universe based upon the holiness of God, your word. Give me understanding in these, the psalmist cries. Without it, we are truly in an existential crisis. Without it, we can't survive. But with the Lord's law, commandments, and testimonies, and precepts, and so forth written on our heart, we will live. We will live as individuals and as a society. Let us pray that the Lord would grant repentance accordingly. Father, we thank you for revealing to us in your holy scriptures the foundations of what is immutably true. I pray, Lord, as we search our own souls and find that we fall short of the reverence the psalmist so gloriously affirms in this song, I pray, Lord, that you would change our hearts to love the trial-tested word of God. Lord, I pray that you'd encourage us to pray with boldness, zeal, and authority for those who must recognize this or else, even people who presume to wield power and rule in our place in government and so forth. We pray, Lord, as your people, that we would be so closely tied to you that in spite of the hardship that we face, our foes, though they consider us small and despised and assail us with trouble and anguish, nevertheless, may we be zealous. May we love your word all the more. Lord, may we remember it each day and take delight in what you reveal there. To the praise of your name, the salvation of souls, and the advance of your kingdom, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.